Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thank you for tuning in to Mortification of Spin. This is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Amy Bird and Carl Truman. Um, we want to talk today about uh, a, a book, actually a two-volume uh, work that has um, uh, garnered a lot of attention. It's made several uh, top 10 reading lists uh, out there over this past year. Um, I was happy to put it on, on my list of, of top reads for the year. It's entitled The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism by Michael McClymond of St. Louis University. It's published by Baker. And uh, as I said, it's a two-volume work, the whole thing encompassing uh, around a 1,000 pages. It is not a, a, a little thing that you uh, read one evening and, uh, and, and set aside. It, it requires time and commitment, uh, but it is excellent. Um, it is a thorough work that goes into detail that I would have never even guessed would have been there on this subject. But I, I would say that uh, we owe uh, Dr. McClymond uh, a lot of gratitude in giving us such a comprehensive work. It is not a work without a, a point at the end. Um, he does critique universalism in a way that is very effective. He takes it, uh, he looks at it from a scholarly point of view, but shows over a great deal of time and with a great deal of patience and research um, some of the fatal flaws within universalism. Carl, uh, would you be so kind as to offer just a brief explanation of what Christian universalism is. Now, we, we've got universalism broadly conceived, but what do we mean when we, when we say Christian universalism? Well, typically with Christian universalism, we mean that all people are saved uh, ultimately, that nobody uh, uh, goes to, to hell in the long run, if you like. There are various ways of, of working out how people get into heaven. Right. But the, the distinction of Christian universalism is that it doesn't bypass the work of Christ. Right. Uh, now, that might sound a bit odd, particularly to an evangelical reformed audience where we, we tend to think of, well, surely the, the way we're saved is by faith, by conscious faith mm -hmm. in Christ, and certainly that's true. But your typical Christian universalist would, would argue that the conscious faith in Christ in an explicit sense is not necessary, that the reason why everybody gets to heaven is the work of Christ, whether they understand it or whether mm -hmm. they care to acknowledge it in yeah shape or form. So it's not simply a case of, well, all religions lead to God. Yeah. Much. Right. Uh, Karl Rahner, the great Roman Catholic theologian. Anonymous Christians. With his yeah. development, the idea of anonymous Christians, anonymous Christianity, where there are people who are Christians, they just don't know it. I had a Jewish, a liberal Jewish friend who regarded Rana as, as even more offensive than, yeah. than evangelicals and myself because yeah. he said, you know, at least I had the decency to say, you're not going to heaven because you don't believe in Jesus. He didn't <laughs> want some patronizing guy saying you're a Christian anyway. Right. And that's, and that's uh, part of the tricky thing with Christian universalists is that 
if you're not trained to hear some of the things they say, and if they're not being extraordinarily explicit, you might think we believe the same thing, just in terms of they will say, like, Jesus saves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Jesus saves everybody regardless. Um, they, they, they would reject syncretism, as you kind of hinted at earlier, Carl, that, that uh, all religions are a path to God. They would say, no, Jesus is the path to God. It's just that yeah. he makes sure at the end everybody gets on that path, yeah. and that's why they're universalists. Yeah, and I think in, in the Devil's Redemption book, uh, you know, the discussion of Karl Barth is interesting from that perspective mm-hmm. because although Barth denied that he was a universalist right. and would always want to try to take somebody at their word, yeah. everything within his theology points towards mm-hmm. all humanity being elected for salvation right. in Jesus Christ. So right. it, it's, it's interesting that Barth, if you like, that the most outspoken and militant opponent of other religions is also at least in in strong tendency a universalist a christian universalist right right so what um what the author does is is he begins early and traces the historical development how do we how do we get to universalism and talk about thorough i mean he gets into gnostic kabbalistic esoteric traditions mm-hmm. um which which, which may you know, may want you to, you know, set your hair on fire and jump out a window just, just reading that. But it's, it's quite fascinating because he shows these various strands coming out of what would seem to be incompatible traditions and shows quite effectively how they ended up in the stream of a lot of popular evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bottom line is you talk to a lot of, quote, evangelicals today and they don't like talk of hell. Um, they seem to be positively oriented towards, well, just what we just explained about Christian universalism. Well, you know, Jesus is eventually going to save everybody. That appeals to a lot of evangelicals. Oh, yeah. And they don't know anything about Kabbalistic esoteric traditions. Mm-hmm. All they know is that it sounds a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. The work is, again, it's a very scholarly work. He's not out beating anybody over a head. It's, it's not a polemical exercise in, ten, in terms of how we tend to think about polemics. But, but, but he, he is very clearly offering a critique. He's taking a critical look at universalism and, and, and extremely effective in, in showing its fundamental weaknesses. I mean, basically what he does, by, by the time you get to the end of volume two and, and he's wrapping up in some of, some of his conclusions, uh, I think he, he rather effectively shows that, it, that it's a house of, of cards. He, he writes this um, in volume one, which I thought was a fascinating insight. He writes, the great irony of Christian universalism lies in its eclipse of grace. The effort to extend grace to all has repeatedly ended up compromising or even eliminating the notion of grace. What seems to be all grace turns out on inspection to be no grace. We have already noted uh, that esoteric theologies have trouble accounting for a particular people of God, for particular divine actions in history, and for a particular Savior. Now, that really kind of encapsulates where he's going uh, throughout the entire work, but, but I thought that that irony that he points out is essential in understanding the problematic nature of universalism, is that it entirely eclipses grace, which again is the irony because, yeah. because universalists hold themselves forward as ones who really understand grace. I mean, even if you go back to Rob Bell's 
cheap stuff on on love on love wins you know he's saying that the traditional historic christian approach to understanding notions of heaven and hell that that those are hopeless there's no grace there's no real love there but but this work helps put the lie to that that it's actually universalism yeah uh, which eclipses grace i mean what what essentially universalism does is it disembowels grace of of any content right. and makes it merely a divine sentiment or an aesthetic right thing when you look at grace in scripture it's intimately connected to the person of the lord jesus christ and the person of the lord jesus christ is intimately connected to the sacrificial system of the old testament that mm-hmm. provides much of the matrix for understanding the work of christ in the right. new well the sacrificial system of the old testament is is particular in that it's a system aimed at the people of israel mm-hmm. uh, and it's bloody mm-hmm. The, the slaying of an animal is, is not a sentimental exercise. The propitiation of God, the turning away of God's wrath is not grounded ultimately in, in vacuous sentiment. Right. It's grounded in sacrificial action. Right. So I think part of what we see going on is you know, universalism naturally, maybe it's the archetypal heresy of a therapeutic mm-hmm. age. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there, there's this great um, moral calculus to the gospel, to biblical Christianity, where, where there's actual real justice, which actually humans crave. We want to know right. that there's justice in the universe. Well, Christianity says there is. There, there's objective, pure, good justice in the universe. It's God. And, but, but the dilemma is that means there's got to be a particular answering to that justice and that's the moral genius of the gospel is that it actually provides a way for justice and mercy to be satisfied what universalism does is it is it papers over um, any real foundation for justice and therefore no real hope for the person whose conscience is seared uh, because well, of their sin. ironically like it becomes it naturally shifts to moralism mm-hmm. well yeah exactly which um, is where unitarianism is essentially it's so all it is. It has a distinctive, it's right. social justice. Mm-hmm. He, he takes on, in, as it comes into some of these esoteric religions, which find their way into, by the way, uh, popular evangelicalism, unfortunately. He talks about this, uh, the, the, the spark of the divine teaching. You know, we're all a spark of the divine. And, mm-hmm. and you have to be very careful because you'll find notions of that in some popular theology. You'll, you'll certainly find it. In, um, in word faith theology, in a lot of uh, the name it, claim it, prosperity theology, the spark of the divine stuff. And he writes, in, in the spark of the divine teaching, you know, in, in other words, this idea that we're all a part of the divine and will ev- eventually be subsumed back into the divine, you know, everybody together. He says, in the spark of the divine teaching, salvation occurs, and this is key, salvation occurs according to nature, not according to grace. Mm-hmm. Again, no, there's no place for grace to occur right. because there is no sin and there is no justice and there is no need for propitiation. So therefore, mm-hmm. salvation is just simply a function of nature. Yeah, and by making this a nature argument, an ontological foundation that's based for our salvation, I mean, it changes who God is. He becomes needy mm-hmm. and uh, he needs to save everyone because he needs everyone. Um, he needs me mm-hmm. to be God. Right. Um, because my soul, and, and interestingly, like, as I was reading that part, I was thinking chicken soup for the soul <laughs> theology, yeah. mm-hmm. because I remember having that book in like high school. And one of the first little essays in it was 
exactly that theology. It was a human spirit that had come from heaven, entered mm -hmm. a body, um, and then, you know, you read about the life and then returning back to someone that they had, you know, met in while they were in heaven. Like the whole journey right. was about this returning to God because you're kind of a derivation from God. Right. So, right. um, and I just thought, oh, the theology in here is terrible. But right. as I was reading this, I was thinking, this is, this is chicken soup for the mm -hmm. soul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And, and Amy, you bring up a really good point there because if, if you look at some of the language that's used in popular evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. um, they start to blur the lines between creator and, and creation yes. and, and they'll, they'll play on things like we're in the image of God, but what they'll do is they'll hopscotch from being in the image of God to being a part of God right. or, or spark of, of, of mm -hmm. that divinity. And of course that leads you naturally into universalism because if we're a spark of the divine. If right. we're a piece of God, then mm -hmm. naturally one day we'll be subsumed into God. Right. And this is precisely what, what Rob Bell teaches. Uh, th this isn't just some guru in India. This is Rob Bell and, and others who have been associated with evangelicalism in the past. Well, here's the part that bothers me, too, about the way we handled Rob Bell. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with um, Jen Hatmaker. Uh -huh. Rob Bell, Love Wins comes out, and there is a, a little bit of a kerfuffle started mm -hmm. with it. But I know mm -hmm. I had loved ones who, you know, consider themselves strong Christians who are committed in major ministries saying, oh, no, that's not a big deal that he's saying this and love wins. He's not saying he's a universalist. That's mm -hmm. not his argument. And, you know, they're still really, really wanting to learn from Rob Bell as, right. as a Christian teacher who is Orthodox mm -hmm. until he comes out saying that homosexuality is holy. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden everybody backs away from Rob Bell. And now everybody looks at Rob Bell, you know, within our uh, reformed-ish circles as mm -hmm. a heretic. Mm -hmm. But... um. The fact that the universalism was there first, so of course he's mm -hmm. going to say something like, you know, homosexual activity is perfectly holy. Mm -hmm. That goes in line with his theology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although there is, I think there's a, a, a sort of modification to be made there, which comes out very, very well at certain points in these volumes, and that is that there are theologians to whom we would look in the history of the church who have great right. insights on very important issues who yet either tend or explicitly hold to universal salvation. Right. You know, the great examples from the ancient church would be Origen. Origen. Mm -hmm. uh, Origen believes in universal salvation, but is really the man who develops the idea of eternal generation. Right. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, one of the three Cappadocian fathers, is arguably a universalist and yet of vital importance in the development of, of Nicene Trinitarianism and, and, and then obviously mm -hmm. flowing from that it subsequent makes you ask, like how they can be consistently. Yeah, well, I think with Origen and Nyssa, the, there's a, this is often overplayed in general, but I think specifically with those two, their kind of Platonism pushes them in that, right, in that right. way. Uh, that I mean, the thing about cool. those guys, particularly Gregory of Nyssa, but, but also Origen, is their good contributions are separable right. from the disasters, right. if I could put it that way. Were, were, they, were they purgationists? Uh, you know, uh, 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 they have yes. a category for purgatory? Okay. Yeah. Well, purgatory, unfortunately, you know, that's really a in the way we tend to think of right. it, as in Luther, Indulgence, mm -hmm. is a later medieval development. Right. But certainly uh, after 
an afterlife period of purgation. Yeah. Yes, that would be consistent. Yeah, me, um, me, meaning meaning you know a, a, a time where uh, after death we we have this opportunity to to see uh, the rest of our sins purged yeah. um, mm-hmm. out of us. And and he mentions. The author of, of these two volumes mentions uh, universalism by way of purgatory or by way of, of purgation, and, and again, pointing out that it denies grace because in the end, uh, the author points out uh, who's responsible for your salvation in practical terms. It's you as you deal with finally being purged of, of these remaining sins, therefore making you fit for heaven. And so I... One of the great services of these volumes is, is he really helps to show how all of these formulations of, of universalism end up doing away, undermining, uh, and otherwise eclipsing grace. The very thing that the universalist would say that he or she upholds mm-hmm. is grace. He shows how it, how it eclipses grace. And love. I mean, I love how he says one word to explain universalism is not love, but mm-hmm. metaphysics. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So here's a practical question then. How do you preach hell? Mm. You know, without wanting to get into the grounds of making it, oh, it's purely metaphorical what's taught right. in Scripture. It's not obvious to me from Scripture how hard and fast one should be about the details, right. if you like. Of the, is there literal fire? Is there, are there literal worms? Yeah. Right, right. Um, and to what extent when you're faced with a congregation that by and large just professes the Christian faith, yeah. can you press hell relative to imperatives. Mm-hmm. What, what I generally try to do is I tell people, this is what we know for sure about hell. We know that there is a hell. Um, we know that people occupy it, that people will occupy it. We know that the Bible uses extremely unpleasant language to describe uh, the suffering of hell. Our Lord Jesus said more about hell than anybody, so he warned about it. He was a preacher of hell, if you like, of coming judgment and the necessity to avoid uh, the coming judgment. And so, so we know that there is a hell, a, a lake of fire into which the enemies of God will be, uh, will be cast. Whether or not uh, fire is to be uh, understood literally or metaphorically to just help us understand in human terms by way of analogy, the fact that it's as bad as we can possibly imagine. You know, Jesus points to the, um, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, the, the, the garbage dump, of, of Jerusalem as, as a way to help his hearers understand that it's the most unpleasant thing imaginable, uh, this stinking, rotting, constantly smoldering uh, location that anybody in Jerusalem uh, knew about. Jesus says, that's what hell is, 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 is like. It's, it's, it's this terrible, terrible thing. We, we also know from Jesus's teaching that it's a place of, of eternal torment. And Jesus eternal. was very, yeah, eternal. Jesus was very clear about this. We also know from Jesus, if you go to John chapter 3, that the requirement for hell is a rejection of faith in Christ. He who does not believe is condemned already, Jesus says. So, so we know those things about hell. And then, and then what I would say in terms of preaching it is that we, we want to preach it the way Jesus preached it. Um, we we want to we plead with people to not go to hell. We, we want to warn of, of judgment to come. We want to be very clear. I, 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 one of the things that frustrates me about people in, in my own camp, some Reformed Protestants, some very famous Reformed Protestants have so nuanced language about hell that it ends up not sounding all that bad. 
when I hear people say, and they kind of draw on C.S. Lewis to do this, well, you know, hell is, is us finally having what we always wanted in this life, you know, life without God. Well, let me ask you this. How bad does that sound to the unbeliever? Doesn't sound bad to an unbeliever. It doesn't, it doesn't sound want, bad. It doesn't. They want to be away. Yeah, from. It doesn't sound bad to an unbeliever at all. Now, I can make a case that yes, but but even even this, you know, life without God is not an accurate description of hell. No, I mean because God is you're present. Without, you're without God's grace. Exactly. You are in the presence of God, minus His mercy. You're in the presence of God's wrath. And, 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 and again, the point is, is that I think the reason why that kind of language is avoided, even by otherwise, quote, conservative, even reformed Protestants, is that people don't like that. Well, of course they don't like that. I mean, Jesus knew what it was to lose a crowd. But, but I would say that to the person, to the preacher, is be prepared to have some of your church members angry at you if you preach hell. You know, I'll, I'll hear people say, you know, I just don't want all that, you know, hell and damnation preaching. And my question is always the same. Where are you hearing it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, McClyman also emphasizes the importance of one of the things you hit on, the eternality mm-hmm. of hell, because mm-hmm. there's a lot in yeah. our camp who teach annihilationism. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, conditional immortality. Yeah. John and, Stott. Yeah. Well, and he gets into N.T. Wright as well. Yep. Oh, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. N.T. Wright and John Stott, you know, unfortunately, the great John Stott was an annihilationist. I was going to comment that what, what has always interested me about the English annihilationists, mm-hmm. uh, John Stott, John mm-hmm. Wenham and company, is that uh, they're all English public school boys. They all come from that. And, and when, I, when I say public school Help, elite yeah. context, I mean elite, upper class, private wealthy, school. private fee-paying right. schools, where a very particular view of what it was to be English and what it was to be a decent person was was cultivated. And when I read those guys uh, touching on these things, and, and Stott doesn't write on it very often. No, it, it, only, no. it, it didn't play a big part in his it public ministry, to be fair to him. Right. It comes out really in, in a couple of interviews he mm-hmm. did and uh, the dialogue with David Edwards. But it, it seems to me that they're committing the error of making God into a decent English public schoolboy. <laughs> who just wouldn't do that sort of thing. Because the, the great opponent of that in the English context was Jim Packer. Right. Jim Packer, like me, is a grammar school boy. And we have all, <laughs> all kinds of different insecurities. And when I, <laughs> when I had the privilege of interviewing Jim Packer a couple of years ago, I actually asked him that question. Do you think that the difference between people like you and me and John Stott is uh, that we're grammar school boys salt <laughs> of the earth and they're kind of chinless <laughs> public school wonders and um he seemed to find it a reasonably plausible argument yeah <laughs> yeah but seriously i think that that's a good you know, annihilationism is a good example in the english context of how our social mores and expectations can shape our theology we're all subject to that right uh, but right. that in a in a particularly serious way because annihilationism doesn't seem to me to be too much better than universalism as, a, yeah. as an option. And, and it's interesting because I remember reading Stott and, and one of the way, you know, again, annihilation meaning that, that there's going to be this time um, of suffering in hell as one's uh, sins uh, and sinfulness is judged consciously, that you'll experience, that the lost person will experience that, but that eventually the fires of hell are, are the fires that consume and, and annihilate the person so that there's no longer, there's not an eternal conscious judgment they would start would say yes hell is eternal because the annihilation is eternal yeah Yeah. um 
and, uh, and and again, going back, I don't want to be unfair to his view. Um, uh, it, it's it's not a universal. He believes in hell, believe, mm-hmm. the late John Stock. Uh, but but ultimately, the, those fires of hell uh, consume. Now, he, he said, and, and what he did at one point was to, to illustrate this way. God is just. And take, for instance, you know, the, the worst we can think of. Think, take Hitler. You know, his suffering would, would need to be significant, would need to be substantial. But he didn't sin eternally. So, therefore, justice would demand that he doesn't suffer eternally now again i what the flaw in that thinking is that we're applying limited fallen notions of justice rather than imagining what god's justice mm-hmm. must be yeah. like yeah. and that's the flaw in that thinking well of course anselm sort of deals with that in the 11th century when he talks about uh, how much is one sin against god worth is right. it an infinite number of universes so right. But you're getting, of course, then into issues of quantifying both time and sin, both of which yeah. are somewhat complicated right. as, uh, as procedures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Another element, I think, to discuss with this is the seriousness of sin. Mm-hmm. Can right. you imagine what we would be like without grace? Yeah. And how, right. like, does sin grow? Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine living with myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> much less... Everybody else there. Yeah, yeah. Un- universalism, that's such a great point, because universalism totally pulls the rug out from, from the seriousness of, of, of sin. Consider the, just consider the, the wickedness that we perceive in the world and what we would think about a God who isn't angry about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it undermines the justice of God to the extent that, well, well think, think about it in these terms. What, what do we do with a judge who consistently acquits the guilty. We impeach that judge mm-hmm. because he's not doing his job well. And yet we want God uh, to be like the bad judge who gets impeached. Yeah, but so many of us will look at those people and think, okay, their crimes are heinous. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they deserve that. But me, right. I'm a pretty good person. Right. And right. I think that so much of this is wrapped around that thought still that mm-hmm. we're not all that bad. Right. And that God needs us. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where, you know, I think about our understanding of the covenant and how w- when God makes his, really codifies or, or, or solemnizes the covenant of grace with Abraham, and then even further in, in the stipulations with, in the covenant with Moses, is, is the elaborate um, uh, means there are uh, to, to, uh, to deal with sin among God's people mm-hmm. is that when, when we come to the covenant of grace, wh- what's, what's happening there? Well, there's, there's, there's an accounting for sin. There's a way for sin to be dealt with because we desperately need that. We, our we, God is a holy God. Exactly. We, we see it in the covenant sign given with Abraham that the shedding of blood is necessary. And then by the time we get to the administration of the covenant with Moses, what do we see? We see a sacrificial system established because of the sins of who? Of the sins of God's people the wickedness that God's people will indulge in. And, uh, and, and there again, we're, we're dependent on grace. We're dependent on, on, on God's calculus of grace in the gospel, that something has to be done about sin. And, and, and universalism completely obliterates all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's so much more. I mean, we really have only scratched the surface here. These are two massive volumes that are exhaustive. They're, excellent resources you know we we cover a lot of different types of books on this program between academic and popular level and this is something that 
it's so beneficial to have on your bookshelf. Mm -hmm. it's, it might not be a book unless you're in the academic realm of things that you want to read from page one all the way to page 1000 and something. Um, this is going to be a great resource, though, for you to be able to dive into, into different sections if you want. Even You don't have to read it straight from front mm -hmm. to back. Right. Um, it's a great resource to have. Michael McClyman is so thorough in tracing the historical evolution of this doctrine, but that this theology, but also um, he theologically just tears it apart mm -hmm. <laughs> so well. Um, he names names, you know, throughout history up until now. I know that we are always going to be having to be in conversation with people over this kind of theology. And then I just see in my own town, the Unitarian Universalist Church is packed. Mm. I mean, it's booming. Which, which is crazy. Who goes to... Anyway, okay. I know. Uh, we don't understand it. Uh, why not just do social justice um, if nobody goes to hell and anyway. we don't, if God yeah. isn't really there's holy. There's no gospel and no, yeah. Yeah, so just there's so many uh, layers to this theology to be addressed and why, why it's such a great resource to have on your bookshelf. Again, it's published by Baker Books and we highly recommend it. And thanks for listening this week. If you would like to go over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, if you'd like to help us keep the podcast running, we have a donation option for you there. Um, we also just appreciate your prayers and your interaction with us. We love to hear listener questions and even some pushback uh, sometimes in, in a healthy way and encouragement as well. We love all of that from you but guys. Very, very little pushback. Though. Just a little bit of pushback yeah. is all we can take yeah. with fragile egos. Mm -hmm. But thanks for listening to us, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about the Word of God which shapes the Christian communities and constitutes and founds and gathers the Christian church is not just a preached word, but also the, the word that is on the lips of every disciple. And we just sort of said that fairly briefly on the way through. And we got some interesting pushback, actually, from in some quarters, um, asking us to justify that position. Uh, and surely if we give too much emphasis to the to the word ministry of every Christian, we might be in danger of perhaps even undercutting the pulpit. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
what what's what helped make um, the, the the rise of Unitarian Universalism uh, effective, particularly in 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 the Northeastern United States? What were some of the the factors going into that? You're gonna have to delete this section, Todd. That's a section <laughs> of the book I haven't read. <laughs> Todd, maybe you'd like to answer your own question on that. <laughs> okay, so hey, let's, it's, uh, it's a huge thing, man. I'm afraid Todd's gonna ask me a question for the section I haven't read. Uh, well, I a split-second decision there. Do, do I be honest, <laughs> or do I kind of flannel my way through this? Like, this is coming uh, back as the outtake. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I already resigned to that. <laughs>